We're back with another PW Torch VIP Podcast Vault for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. And today we jump back 18 years to the February 28th, 2006 Wade Keller Hotline news update, including details on WWE's new wellness policy, the reaction within WWE, uh, details on the meetings that were held telling wrestlers about the policy, what the reason was internally for not testing randomly and systematically for marijuana, a comparison to the NBA's policy around 1999, how certain specific aspects of the policy could save lives, how strict steroid testing actually creates an uneven playing field rather than an even playing field, what people are most skeptical of, what undercard wrestlers in OVW are most worried about, and more. Also, other topics include the inside story on why TNA's tag teams, the Hearthrobs and the Dicks, were fired, quarter-hour analysis of TNA Impact from the weekend, including another strong indication of Sting's drawing power, the latest on major Monday Night War era main eventers appearing on the primetime debut of Impact Wrestling and more. This is the latest in the ongoing series of some of the earliest surviving insider pro wrestling podcasts you'll find anywhere. This is Wade Keller with a VIP audio update for Tuesday, February 28th. Well, WWE announced drug testing yesterday. We've got the uh, uh, news of that on the website and WWE.com posted the entire wellness policy. There's not a lot more information that was given out in the meeting with uh, wrestlers yesterday at Raw. Um, the entire crews were together. It just worked out timing-wise with both the Raw and SmackDown crews in Washington, D.C. because they're not taping SmackDown tonight because SmackDown's on their way overseas. So it just made sense to uh, make the announcement now. The timing worked out perfectly. Uh, Dr. Black was there. Uh, Vince McMahon, of course. Uh, Stephanie, John Laurinaitis. Um, road agents. They, everybody, is, everybody who needs to know about this was there including those who are going to be tested, which is exclusively the independent contracted talent, the talent who are independent contractors but under contract to WWE. They're the ones who this policy affects. No first testing date was given. And I've asked around. I've been on the phone all, all night last night and all day today, and I'm behind on a couple things because of – behind on a couple other things like the Raw Roundtable because of that. Um, but from what I've been able to gather, no one is quite sure when that first test is going to take place. Um, most are assuming it could take place after WrestleMania, but th it really doesn't matter because the first test is going to be what's called a baseline test. And what that means is they're going to find out what levels you have in you of everything. And you won't be in trouble for anything. Um, the only thing you'll be in trouble for is if those levels don't go down at a rate indicative of you being off them for being off whatever it indicates that you're on for an extended period of time. The, the problem is, is the policy was announced yesterday. Wrestlers were not under any obligation, other than not doing illegal drugs, but they were not under any obligation previous to the meeting yesterday and the policy being issued to not be on prescription pills, to not be, uh, uh, well, I mean, in a way, to not be on steroids. I mean, that's, it's kind of a mixed bag because it's illegal, but at the same time, from a company standpoint, there was no formal rule against it until yesterday. So wrestlers are, if they, if everybody complied 100% with this new policy and said, I'm going to follow the rules 100%, if you tell me not to, I won't, well, if then they get tested the next day, a ton of people are going to test positive for a lot of things. So the baseline testing is, is going under the assumption that everybody's going to get off everything. We want to know where they were the day this policy started or within the month of this policy started. So until that first test takes place, there will be certain drugs that wrestlers are loading up on. Wrestlers are going to load up on anything so that, that they want to stay on for a long period of time, such as steroids. Because the way the testing works is, 
you you test at X level of steroids, the next time you have to be X minus something. And it has to be X minus something significant enough to give the impression that you are off and your body is ridding it from your system. Testosterone stays in your system for months, even after you stop injecting yourself with extra. It takes a while for your body to rid it. It also takes a while for your body to absorb uh, steroids and have it take an effect, although less time to absorb it than it does to get rid of it. And this is just kind of general layman terms, but that's what wrestlers are being educated on right now, including talks amongst themselves trying to figure out not so much how to beat the system, but how to take advantage of the system in the same way everybody else is. Um, the, the meeting last night was, wasn't a big deal otherwise. I mean, everybody kind of knew what was coming. And uh, the, from talking to wrestlers, um, I've talked to a number of people in WWE and also former WWE people who were around during the last testing situation and, and just kind of getting their thoughts on the policy. And to everybody, to a man, is pleased with the, the test. And there's guarded optimism that it will be applied on an even-handed basis. And that's really the key. I think everybody I spoke to is personally okay with the testing policy as long as it's administered equally. And the biggest concern from lower card guys is that upper card guys are going to be able to stay on it, that the test, the testing won't include them or exceptions somehow will be made, and that they will end up looking small and not get opportunities and that somebody will beat the system and they'll get ahead because of it. And that's and this is mostly steroids. I mean, this is mostly the, the steroid and, and performance, or in, more, in this case, body enhancing. But there's an aspect of performance enhancement, too, that is important. Wrestlers who can get away with taking certain drugs that allows them to perform at a higher energy level and uh, recuperate from nagging injuries quicker and thus be better in the ring, look better in the ring, as if that matters, but it does to a certain degree. Uh, they're worried that, that they will follow the policy and others won't, and that will hurt them. Um, John Laurinaitis and Ed Kaufman went to uh, Ohio Valley and Deep South today also, um, held meetings with talent. It was interesting that in OVW, um, some of the wrestlers are under WWE developmental contracts and some of them are not. The wrestlers who are not under developmental contracts but are part of OVW were not welcome at the meeting. The meeting was only open to wrestlers under contract, under WWE contract. And they were told the same thing. I mean, they're not a, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of difference uh, in, in what was said at the meetings, other than fewer people were present. Uh, Dr. Black did not attend uh, the OVW meeting, uh, but I believe yeah he was at the uh, RAW meeting. Doctors were there explaining the policy. <clears throat> the, the policy as explained, and, and there were questions asked and answers given, but the, the gist of it is it is what it seems. I mean, it's a strict policy. It's a zero-tolerance policy in that you get suspended right away. Um, if you fail a test, it's very private um, in the sense that the WWE doesn't have a lot to do with it. A lot of people think Vince McMahon is going to pick and choose um, who gets tested and when and make sure it's not done at inopportune times and interrupts storylines and hurts the bottom line. That's not the case. As it's being explained, this test is random. Um, every wrestler will be assigned a random number in a computer, and then a computer will generate random numbers from that um, that will be independent of the computer that attaches a number to a wrestler. And then they'll test, let's say, five guys will be tested. Just because, you know, from an expense standpoint, they are, I mean, this is very expensive. And, and Vince McMahon wants to keep the expense is, is down as much as it can be while the test is still not a farce or where the test is still effective. So let's say once a month five guys get tested. 
And that might be about all. I, I haven't seen anything in the documents that talks about how many people will be tested unless I've, I've forgotten in the whirlwind of the past 24 hours. Um, well, let's say five guys are tested. Well, what will happen is a computer will, uh, will, a jet will attach a number to everybody who's eligible for testing. And then another computer will randomly pick five numbers. Then after that, those five numbers will be matched up with the, with the numbers that are matched to the wrestlers on the other computer program. Um, I think that's about the easiest way to explain a complicated system. So those five wrestlers will then be pulled aside and given comprehensive tests for all this stuff. And it could be five lower card guys. It could be the top five main adventures in the company. Most likely, due to the law of randomness, it will end up being a variety. Um, you could get uh, a Nunzio, Kurt Angle, uh, Undertaker, um, and uh, uh, Tori Wilson. And, uh, you know, I mean, just a random assortment of people. I mean, at any given time. It, there's no, shouldn't be any rhyme or reason to it. And then if they test positive, 30-day suspension. Second time, 60-day suspension without pay. And then after that, they will be terminated. Now, that's the general policy. There are exceptions in that punishment could be more strict. If somebody is insubordinate, if they are, if it's affecting their job, if they're doing something illegal, or they're caught with illegal substances, they can be fired on the spot. They reserve that right, and they should. Um, they will not be testing specifically for marijuana. And that is a good thing in my opinion. And, and I am not, and I've, I've talked about this before, I'm not in favor of uh, legalizing marijuana for kids in junior high and high school because marijuana is innocuous. It does no harm and, and let kids have a good time and it helps them develop their artistic musical side. So 15-year-olds just won't pot. No way. I mean, the, the brain is still developing. Um, and and it's it's absolute pot is absolutely a deterrent to motivation. I mean, there's no question. The, the the biggest pothead will tell you pot does not motivate him. It might give him ideas um, for music or art or or uh, creative writing, but it doesn't motivate anyone to get out of the chair and go do something. Um, and and that's where you know the arguments about alcohol being safer than pot are ridiculous because when you're on when you're drinking and you're drunk, getting in a car and going for a ride seems like a pretty good idea. Uh, you know, when you smoke pot, it's really not something that crosses your mind because it takes effort. And so it's in WWE's best interest to not have all their guys on pot. But, um, and it's definitely in parents' best interest to not have their, their kids smoking pot. But once you become an adult, I mean, I really don't have a problem with it. Um, and, and I actually think it's kind of silly, and I think there's ulterior motives for it being illegal. Um, but, of course, like anything, it should be illegal to, just like it's illegal in some states to drive while on the cell phone, it should absolutely be illegal, as it already is, to drive under the influence of any kind of mind-altering drug, be it alcohol or pot. But to test wrestlers, I mean, my, just my view on that aside, and maybe in three years my opinion will change. I mean, it's not something I've studied a lot, but that's just what my gut tells me. That's what common sense tells me. And, and from talking to people in WWE today, the feeling is, is that the social stigma on marijuana is gone. I was doing research on the Internet late last night and uh, looked at an old NBA article uh, from 1999 on marijuana. And it talked about how the NBA tests for marijuana. And Dr. Black was quoted um, in the story, the one who's in charge of this WWE program. And he said that the NBA marijuana policy was, was a farce. He said it was basically an IQ test. You would have to be an idiot and have bad luck in order to get caught with it. But the NBA felt the need to put it in their, in their testing of policy because thus there was a stigma against the NBA being a bunch of potheads. And there were quotes in these stories saying if the NBA actually tested everyone for pot and really were, were serious about catching everybody, half or two-thirds of the NBA would be gone. And, and I believe that's true. 
And I also believe if I'm a coach of an NBA team, I don't want my players smoking pot, or at least not very often, because I truly believe when you hear about some of the players, and you can hear the doublespeak in announcers, because announcers know, uh, mainstream media members who write for the newspapers, who are beat reporters for the teams, they know, they know who the potheads are. I mean, I've got enough friends in, in, in the major league sports in this town to know, you know, just through, God, just through word of mouth from knowing them, who the potheads are. Um, and, and it's not, you know, that stuff isn't a secret. And it comes across in how they play. It's absolutely a deterrent to performance. And if I'm a basketball coach, I'd want my players tested for pot. Um, and if I, you know, I mean, it's just, it's sad. It's ruined a lot of careers. Not because it's addictive, but because some players, once they get that fat, happy contract, it's, in their, it's not in their constitution to earn it. They think they earn it once that contract is signed, and then they just want to have fun and relax and chill out. And they think, you know, bringing, bringing 60% of their uh, skill level to the court is enough. And it's not. And the NBA had multiple reasons, therefore, to want to test for marijuana for PR reasons and because a lot of really talented players were not uh, performing up to their, their potential. The problem is, if they really did administer the tests diligently as opposed to creating a PR campaign saying we test for marijuana, when in fact there were so many restrictions and limitations on it, I mean, all you had to do is, is be clean for two weeks during training camp. And then if you were a veteran of X number of years, you had nothing to worry about. And the it's, it was just, reading about it was just clearly a farce. But the NBA couldn't test diligently for it because they'd have to suspend so many players and it would actually hurt the image of the league. So you have in 1999 this, this balancing act between saying we test for marijuana but not wanting the results of testing to devastate your league and your image. So they found a happy medium. WWE used to test for pot. And that's something Sean Waltman talked about in our Torch Talk uh, last fall or this winter, a few months ago, he talked about how, you know, they tested for pot, and it was serious, and guys got caught for smoking pot. And that if they went on an overseas trip, and they thought no one ever got tested on overseas trips. So that's when all the guys would smoke pot, because they would time it out, and they would know when they could get it into their system and out of their system in time for testing. And, and it was that's how serious WWE was about testing for it, because the PR... Uh, trouble that WWE was in from the, the Dr. Zahorian situation and Vince McMahon steroid trial was massive. Well, now, the, from talking to people in WWE, the, the feeling in the company is the stigma on pot has softened. And the feeling is that they will not get any negative heat in the mainstream media for not specifically testing for marijuana. And there also is the belief that this program is intended to save lives and help people, not just be a PR move. And because there's no worse PR than someone dying. And WWE realizes that from Eddie Guerrero. And you hate to talk about it in those terms. I mean, it sounds like the car companies who used to decide, well, gee, if we put a better airbag system in our cars, we will save 27.2 lives per year. Is it worth an extra $3 per car to do that? And they would crunch the numbers and they would conclude, no, it's not worth it because the resulting lawsuits about blah, blah, blah. You hate to put a dollar sign on human life, but that happens in corporate. That happens in the corporate world. In WWE's world, it's cut and dry. If another wrestler dies at Eddie Guerrero's level or higher, it's going to cost them a lot more than a drug pro than a drug program would. And so the hard numbers where we need to do this. Now, the best way to save lives, though, is to create a system, a wellness policy that does actually save lives. And if you eliminate pot as an option, uh, a drug that does not kill people. Um, which it absolutely doesn't, and and, and no one's going to argue it does, um, unless it's abuse, like you get behind a car. But, I mean, my God, you take cough medicine in a car, and that can be a problem. Um, so, and alcohol is obviously a problem, and that's legal. 
But if you don't abuse it, it's not going to kill you. And, and WWE knows also that wrestlers are going to fall back on smoking pot as opposed to taking sleeping pills. I just talked to a former WWE talent uh, earlier today who explained the, the, the pattern of taking uh, sleeping pills to get to sleep and diet pills, which are basically speed, to get up in the morning. And the argument among a lot of wrestlers I've talked to over the years, including this one earlier, is that if you can smoke a little pot before you go to sleep, that's a much better substitute for, from a health standpoint than taking pills, which you build up a tolerance to become addictive and actually have a real negative effect on you. Um, in fact, Time Magazine just had an article. Uh, well, I shouldn't say. I think I'm reading an old issue from January. But uh, they said an article. They did a long-term study on people who had taken drugs, and, and there were no long-term negative effects uh, from pot. There was short-term uh, memory, short-term memory issues, but they didn't believe that there was any long-term effect from uh, smoking pot um, on brain activity or, or anything else, or addictiveness or anything. And and so the feeling among wrestlers, and I'm not trying to turn this into a pro pot argument because, like I said, I mean I, I think everybody's better off not smoking pot um, than everybody smoking pot. I also think there's a lot of hypocrisy behind the laws, and and uh, and and it, it enters the territory of being hypocritical with a lot of things that are legal. So I guess I'm a little bit of a libertarian when it comes to that. Um, but but that aside, this is just bottom line save it could save a life. A wrestler who is addicted to pills in order to get to sleep at night and get up in the morning, just like a lot of people need their their uh, Starbucks in the morning to get going. Well, with wrestlers, it's it's worse um, for a lot of them. And if you give them the option of getting a good night's sleep by smoking some pot before they go to bed, and that that wears off enough that they can get up in the morning without needing speed, unlike Die, unlike uh, sleeping pills, which may not wear off by the time they get up, and that's why they do need the speed, you break that cycle. And if you give wrestlers that option to take something that is 99% more innocuous than a lot of over-the-counter drugs, and it's not addictive in the sense that you would just start taking too much, because it just isn't such a thing. You'll fall asleep before you can take too much of it. Um, that's a good option. So if a wrestler right now is addicted to pills, and they're taking 16 before they go to sleep, some, I mean, Louis Piccoli before he died, was taking dozens and dozens and dozens of prescription pills a day to get one-fourth the high that he used to get from two. That's how bad these pills are. So for WWE to just take everything away would be devastating because wrestlers would literally lose their jobs and they would remain addicted to pills without an income and without a company to help support them, without that social structure to hopefully help support them, and, and they'd be gone. You give them the option to smoke some pot, and wrestlers might take that option. Now, WWE is smart about this, though, and they should be. You don't get to smoke pot on the job. You don't get to show up with your eyes bloodshot. You don't get to start missing dates or forgetting things. You do not, under any circumstances, and this includes alcohol, get to be under the influence of anything on the job. And if there's any signs of that, of course the company should step in and test for marijuana um, and make sure that that's not an issue with them, that they're not going outside to, to, sneak, uh, to sneak a joint, because that will... That, uh, that affects not just them, but it affects the people they're in the ring with. So when you break this down, from a PR standpoint, they did what they had to. And at least in writing, it appears that it's going to be even-handed and fair. It is comprehensive. If you go to the website um, of, of Dr. Black and the company that he founded and runs, I mean, they talk. They, I mean, their talk is pretty strong. That they, you cannot beat their tests. Every test is beatable. But it's as hard to beat as any out there. 
and I've seen nothing but uh, credible statements about him on on uh, on the internet in different articles I've read. And WWE seems serious about this. I've said I've, I've said this back after Eddie Guerrero died, and they had hadn't even announced a drug testing policy yet. That if they did do one, if they felt they had to, if they were backed into a corner and had to go to the expense that it would be one hell of a policy and that Vince would want bragging rights to having the best policy because you know what? You learn from history. The more you know about the history of this business, the more you can predict the future. That's what's so sad about so many people who get into this business and don't know about the history and don't care and then make the same mistakes over and over again. Vince McMahon, the last time he was backed into a corner, had the best tests out there in a lot of ways. Um, and, and most ways. I mean, wrestlers were scared off steroids. They were scared away from pot. They were scared off of recreational drugs. Wrestlers did get suspended. There were definite issues and suspicions about certain aspects of it, especially as time went on and the PR heat died down. And that's another question. How long does this last? Um, there's so many things. There's so many aspects to this. It's a fascinating story because now wrestlers are going to get smaller. And how does that affect them? I know in Ohio Valley, from talking to somebody down there just a little while ago, um, the concern there is not being called up now because you look small. And that Vincent Mann is someone who is he's huge. He's a six-year-old man with a body of a 25-year-old full-time bodybuilder. And the mentality is we've got to impress that guy. And he has unreasonable standards for what a good body is. And the guys in Ohio Valley are concerned that they're going to lose size and that's going to ruin any chance they have to get in uh, to WWE and earn the good money and get the fame and, and, and get to practice their craft on the large stage. So that's the main concern. But if everyone's treated fairly, it sh everyone should go down across the board. Now, there'll be naturally gifted, uh, genetically gifted wrestlers who will benefit the most. Because right now, steroids, in a sense, even the playing field. They even the uneven genetics. There's guys like John Cena, uh, Shelton Benjamin, who are going to be huge and muscular with or without steroids. Um, Lance Storm says he's never taken steroids. And everybody I talk to, who even the most cynical, skeptical people, believe he has not taken steroids. And he's got a great body, a great muscular physique for a wrestler, bigger than a lot of guys who take steroids. So that's where it becomes kind of complicated in predicting that. But there are guys, and, and you can guess, and I'm not going to point fingers, but I'm 95% sure, just like anybody I talk to who's been around bodybuilding and wrestling for years, you, you know, 95% sure on 95% of the guys, I can point and go, that guy is unnaturally muscular for his frame. He's going to be prone to injury because of it. And if he got off steroids, there would be a huge noticeable difference. That will, that will create a separation between the genetically gifted and the ones who are not. And so that's something to keep an eye out for also. Um, first testing could take place any time, probably two or three weeks, maybe right before WrestleMania, but it won't matter. No one will get suspended before Mania, but after Mania, it will be an issue. They're going to give guys who do have pain pill problems, and they do exist right now in WWE, a chance to figure out how to get off of it. And if that means taking a post-WrestleMania break for six weeks, going to treatment, and coming back a new person, and then learning to cope with it, then so be it. Another interesting discussion I've had with people last night and today is how will Vince McMahon react when the reality of his schedule kicks in. Because there's going to be a point where there are guys who will not be able to go on without the pain pills. Their body will be too broken down, but they're going to be money makers. And Vince McMahon's going to have to say, well, gosh, I used to be able to get them to work through their injuries and their pain because of the pain pills that they could take that I didn't test for. Now they can't take them. Now they can't function. They can't perform. And that means there's going to be guys who he wants to make money with who can't because of the condition they're in and the schedule he has. So in the long run, Vince and Stephanie may need, may need to learn that in the long run, now that guys can't rely on pain pills as a shortcut, or not so much a shortcut as, as a way to kind of extend 
what their bodies can absorb, they will have to slow down the style. They will have to start finding people who do moves that they should not be doing in their bodies now in substituting other moves which are safer, that are just as effective at telling the story of the match, and that mandatory time off, which I have been talking about for 12 years. Uh, 10, 12 years ago when this first issue first came up, I wrote about it, and then I write about it every three years on the internet and in the newsletter. I've said mandatory time off on a rotational basis. You give a wrestler, a group of wrestlers, a month or two off, mandatory. A couple times a year or three weeks off, four times a year, whatever it is. I, I prefer one or two months, once or twice a year, or even three times a year if it's one month. Give and, and, and have it be rotational, where at any given time, six, seven guys, this is what I've written multiple times, six or seven guys, take them off the road. You can have storyline reasons for it, or if no one will notice, in the case of like Hardcore Holly, who just disappears, um, you don't have to explain it. But have a rotation where you have a roster that's about 15% bigger than it is now, and at any given time, 15% of the roster is on mandatory break. And you can space it out however you want, but the idea is give people a chance to have light at the end of the tunnel so that they know instead of relying on pain pills to get through the next match or the next week or the next weekend, they go, wait a second, in six weeks, I've got a month or two off. And that's when I'm going to take a vacation. And that's when I'm going to go to the day spot. I'm going to get massages. I'm going to lay in bed and sleep in and not worry about airports, uh, the stress of the airports and, and, and my next match and the politics backstage and let my body recover. I can make it to that date. But you take that away. You take away that six-week off period, that two-month mandatory off period, and it has to be mandatory because otherwise guys are going to think if they do it, they're wusses and they're going to look, look, be looked down upon. And once one person doesn't take time off, then everyone else thinks, i got to prove I'm as tough as he is and as dedicated as he is. So there has to be no exception. Everybody is forced to take time off. Now, you can defer time off if you're the world champion in the middle of a hot run and you're deemed healthy, but that's about the only ex reason to defer the off time outside of a normal pattern. But then they have that opportunity to say, I can make it through uh, the next six, eight weeks, or even 12 weeks, because I know there's light at the end of the tunnel. You take that light at the end of the tunnel away, and that's what exists now. And the only time off you get is when you get hurt or you go to rehab. And I know of wrestlers who have admitted to me in confidence that they have faked injuries in order to get time off because they were scared of the stigma that would be placed on them if they went to Vince and said, Vince, I'm cracking mentally and physically. I need time off. So instead, they got injured, and that was their, their excuse to take time off. It just, it just makes sense. It's why it makes sense for corporations to give workers two, three, four weeks off per year of vacation minimum because it helps productivity year-round to do that because it gives them something to look forward to. So I still believe that, and, uh, and I, I, I've been writing that, like I said, for 12 years, and, and someday I hope, I hope, it, uh, hope it comes true because I think, I think it's the ultimate solution besides this testing program, which I, which I think uh, is a very good step also. But that mandatory time off, I think, solves a lot of lingering issues and will be, in the long run, beneficial to WWE's bottom line. And, it, and a lot of it should come back to that. It is a business, and they've got to weigh that. Um, life should come first, but sometimes it doesn't, as we can tell from the uh, exploitation of the Eddie Guerrero death and uh, in that situation. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, TNA ratings were up this week. Um, on Saturday night. Don't have the money ratings yet, but I expect to have them sometime soon. So those should be in the uh, Torch newsletter this week. But the uh, um, but the TNA ratings were up to a point nine. Um, the show began at just under point nine and ended at exactly point uh, nine. And so overall, it had it was rounded up to point nine. So this wasn't a full double 
this wasn't a full jump of two tenths of a point. It was about a jump of a point and a half in reality. But it did average a point nine. But the interesting thing is it jumped up from the qu- third quarter hour to the fourth quarter hour, nine tenths of a rating point. TNA is pretty steady. Its ratings don't move a lot. In fact, um, in general, it's rare that there's a, a jump of a half a point from one quarter to another. On this show, it jumped up nine-tenths of a point between quarter three and quarter four. That means there's something worth looking into. And guess what happened? Guess who did it? Sting. Once again, Sting has proven to be a ratings draw. Alex Shelley promised to air footage of Sting and his family. That was saved for the fourth quarter hour after the America's Most Wanted versus Rhino and Ron Killings match. So once again, you can look at Sting. He is a ratings draw. What happens is... People watch during that first 45 minutes, but not everybody watches all 45 minutes. Someone watches the first 15 or the second 15 or the next 15, or they watch for 17 minutes or 22 minutes, but they're flipping around otherwise. But if you mention during the show enough times that Sting will be shown, a family video of Sting will be shown in the last quarter hour, and if people care about that more than they care about a Jeff Jarrett promo or an Abyss match or whatever, then you're going to find a larger number of people than normal tuning back in at the end of the show who had tuned out during the show. And that's how you see ratings go up. Um, it's, it's not that magically people know Sting's going to be on. The, the people who come back and make for a rating jump in the last quarter hour are people who, who were watching at least part of the time in the first 45 minutes. And, and I truly believe that's what's on here because the pattern with Sting drawing ratings is pretty consistent. So um, anyway, that's that. Um, one other thing I want to touch on, at least one more thing, is the Dicks and the Heartbreakers. Uh, the Heartbreakers were released. I've, I've talked more about this and. Uh, WWE has denied it, but the uh, heartthrobs were released because of conduct on Bite This, um, that they pushed the line. Uh, the term I was told is they acted like assholes, and that's allowed once you gain tenure. But they were acting like the guys, the people with tenure act, and they didn't have it, and they were already on the bubble, and that pushed them over the edge. The producer of that show was fired. The show was briefly canceled, and then it got back on the air, and then when they put it back on the air... Uh, of course, the explanation was, this show was never canceled, even though we completely deleted one episode and a tag team got fired from it and a producer who produced the show is no longer works here and it was completely taken off the menu. Those erroneous internet reports that said it was canceled were wrong. I mean, it's, it's like watching the, uh, you know, the, the president's spokesman t- dance around issues uh, when asked questions over and over again, except they don't subject themselves to press conferences, so they just kind of make stuff up without any semblance of... of uh, of uh, accountability, although since we're talking about bite this, it's probably not quite as important as uh, as the presidency. But nevertheless, so that that is a situation there. Um, I, I didn't know of any other issues that they had. The Dicks were released because the Dicks got in a fight with each other, uh, and they got in a fight with each other over one of their one of the members of the team's conduct uh, causing jeopardy to the other member's job that uh, one of them felt they were going to get fired because of the other one not reacting well to being hazed and ribbed heavily on the road. And I'm going to get into detail on this in this week's Torch newsletter. But they will not be wrestling as a tag team on the indie scene. And uh, that has been made clear. They do not want to have anything to do with each other. And uh, that there were several veteran wrestlers, which I'll be getting into in the Torch newsletter this week, who were uh, pretty heavily riding one of them. And who showed him who who reacted in a way that just encouraged more of it, and so uh, management let them go. Again, they were kind of on the bubble anyway. There was no way they were going to get over with their gimmick. Um, but uh, that's a story. They actually got into a fist fight, and and both of them were fired, even though uh, one of them was more at fault than the other. Uh, but WWE just didn't really feel like there was room for uh, 
for for both for one of them to have a place on the on the roster um, if one of them got fired. So it just kind of worked out unfortunate for both of them. And uh, as uh, Jeremy and Dusty talked about last week in the uh, in their audio update, um, you know there there was a role for one of them in a singles for them in singles competition. One of them could be kind of the the bruiser of the cruiserweight division, which I've always been endorsed. I've always endorsed. I've always thought that there should be more types of wrestlers in the cruiserweight division than just the high flyers who do all the athletic stuff, which is the stereotype of the division. There's no reason why you can't have somebody who wrestles like Homicide but doesn't have a lot of height for WWE and have him come in and shake up the cruiserweight division. Same thing with having one of the dicks be uh, a real muscular, thick, stumpy, but, but bruising cruiserweight wrestler and introduce new styles to the division. Um, they can still fit the weight requirement if they're short enough and, uh, and, not, and still blend in. Doesn't have to be like Samoa Joe, where he just clearly breaks any weight barrier that might have been part of implied as part of the X division. But anyway, I'll have more on that in the uh, in the Torch newsletter. Uh, final thing, there is uh, no there is definite continued rumors of several major names um, showing up on the first edition of TNA Impact. Um, there are uh, rumors about Goldberg. Um, Steve Austin is not going to be part of the first edition. He is almost ready. He's, uh, I, I can't, I don't know his exact date that he, that he flies out, but he's going to be in Australia for close to two months, uh, very soon here filming the, uh, WWE film movie that he's starring in. So he will be out of the picture and not an option. And, and nobody knows for sure whether it's even an option for him under a WWE films contract to appear for TNA. But, uh, he is out as even a slim, slim, slim possibility. But uh, several other big names still rumored to uh, possibly be part of that first edition of TNA Impact in prime time. Um, I know that Spike TV hopes for an improvement in ratings. They would be thrilled beyond belief if they drew 1.8 to 2.0 consistently um, or averaged that over the first eight weeks. They will be just, they will be absolutely pleased with 1.2 to 1.5. So it's the, the ratings numbers Spike TV is expecting are not so over the top that TNA can't achieve it. And um, I, I think if they bring in the stars and the names that are rumored, and I mean, you can just come up. I mean, a couple of them, I, I one of them I know is going to be there, uh, or almost for sure going to be there, but I was told in confidence, so until I hear it elsewhere, I don't want to say it. And he's not the biggest of the names, but he was, you know, a big part of the Monday Night War era and uh, definitely a headliner uh, who hasn't been on national TV for a while. And uh, several others who are bigger names who, who, are, who are being talked to, and some of it just has to do with legal issues and contracts and, and if things can be worked out. But... That uh, first edition of TNA Impact on Spike could be very interesting. It's too bad it's only one hour because um, I almost think they should kick off the primetime era with a two-hour special. But then you lose that, uh, you know, you lose the, uh, well, you don't really lose it. I mean, they could have done, they can, they still could have done two hours with TNA and still had uh, the first edition of uh, The Ultimate Fighter as part of the three-hour block. But anyway, that is it. We'll have a lot more in the Torch Newsletter on all this stuff, but I wanted to get this stuff out there, uh, some of this out there early for those of you who wanted to hear analysis and backstage news and, and reaction to the drug policy. But so far, in summary, drug policy reaction, positive, um, slight skepticism and cynicism about whether it will be applied even-handedly, but so far, no major complaints about it and quite a bit of relief um, from people who like to smoke pot or people who don't smoke pot. In fact, the person who was who strongest in favor of pot not being tested for was someone who has never smoked pot, never done drugs, um, uh, you know, recreational drugs, and, and but absolutely believe that it could save a life. And those are the people I'm talking to who do influence my opinion on this. And and uh, so anyway, um, 
So far, so good. We'll keep an eye on it, see how it's administered, see how it's applied, and see if anybody gets suspended and if body types change and if lives are saved. And it, this is not a policy that will be judged in, in the week it comes out. This is a policy that, that a policy that will be judged six months from now and even more so in two years um, if uh, there's a track record of it, of it being applied even-handedly, consistently, and with as much uh, in, with with as much uh, detail and vigor today as it is in two years. <laughs>